I am so blessed to be with you. I'm going to uh, share this, this evening out of Matthew chapter 1. And uh, I wanted to share kind of some heavy news before I begin. Um, for those of you who are familiar with our ministry, we have a precious sister in the Lord who's come to share here a few times. Um, her name's Gail McWilliams. And this morning at 2 a.m., she went to be with the Lord. And uh, you can pray for her daughter Ellison and all of her kids and her husband. Um, it's been a... It's been a rough Christmas in a lot of regards. Um, it's going to be a marvelous Christmas for Gail, uh, but uh, for those of us left, we're, we're in a world that's uh, affected by death, and it's, it's a, a joy for us to know where she is. And I, I was thinking about my dad, too. This will be his first Christmas in heaven, so it's going to be pretty spectacular for him. My friend Shannon Grove, the assemblywoman from Bakersfield, kind of my mentor, her, her mom went to be with the Lord uh, this, this week, and we know about uh, John Mink's dad, and so we've been we've been praying and watching as God's been providing and His faithfulness throughout it all. And um, I was touched by the passage, and and this occurred long before I was considering uh, teaching a Christmas message. Uh, Christmas is always difficult because, uh, as I've, I've often shared, growing up in Coronado, my family was what we called CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only. And I've I've heard every Christmas message there is, and. Uh, and after a while, there's only so many angles you can take on the Christmas story. And uh, most folks that are Christmas and Easter-only Christians have got the Christmas story down to a science. And uh, so uh, and I, I just kind of wait until the end to see what the Lord says. And, and I was blessed by what he put on my heart, and I pray it ministers to you this day. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read to you. It's out of, starting with verse 18. But let me begin with prayer. Lord, thank you for families gathering tonight to celebrate your birth gift to all mankind, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And Lord, we ask that as we undertake the study of your word, that it would be refreshed in every heart, and that there would be a deep moving of you, Holy Spirit, in our lives, that we would be so profoundly touched that our lives would be forever changed. And so we commit this into your hands, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all this was done, and this is the theme of our evening. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. He's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 7, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus, which means God saves. The same account is found in Luke chapter 1. And here we have a depiction of the virgin birth. And this is one for controversy throughout all mankind. How can a virgin give birth to a child? And whether or not you believe or don't believe in the virgin birth, the reality is the scriptures declare, and you can't deny what the scriptures say, although you may disagree that the scriptures are the word of God. 
But here we have a very clear picture of why God sent his only begotten son into the world and this idea of a virgin birth. A lot of you have uh, attended college or have heard this term alma mater. Uh, Alma mater means holy virgin or mother, uh, virgin mother. Alma mater means virgin mother. And it's a term that has been um, in the warp and woof of the fabric of our culture since, since our inception. And we look at this as this idea that we are guided and trained and raised and that this picture of the virgin mother. And in Luke chapter 1, it goes on further to describe Mary. And, and she gives what is called the Magnificat, where she just begins to recite psalms, which are songs. And from memory, she begins to recite these psalms, and her heart is overwhelmed as she's with Elizabeth for a period of time, her aunt. And her aunt, we know, is older. Uh, Mary's mother is probably dead. We don't see her in the scriptures. And uh, she was probably a child, a, a very late child of, of her mother. Her mother was probably older at that time. I know a couple of folks who've had children in their 50s, and they say, we'd love to join the Sunshiners, but they don't have childcare. Uh, and there's something fascinating about a late child. And I was a late child. I was six years uh, younger than any of my other siblings, and my parents had me late in life. And uh, you, you grow up with this understanding of the family because you've seen the dynamic, and you observe. And you gain wisdom by observation. And, and as I would watch the, the, my siblings that had gone before me, it would give me an insight and an understanding, and I'd navigate life a little bit easier than it was for them. Well, that's Mary. And Mary is from Nazareth. And Nazareth, it, it was even said, can anything good come of Nazareth? At the time, it was just a backwater town where prostitutes resided, and it was a pretty rough town. And here you have this, this virgin. And the picture that we see in the wording, scholars agree that she was anywhere from 13 to 16 years of age. No scholar is going to say that she was over 16 years of age. She was a young girl. And some translations of the scriptures say a young woman will be with child. That's not the translation in the Hebrew. It is a virgin. It's very clear. And especially in Isaiah chapter 7, it's very clear, virgin. I mean, what, what remarkable aspect is there in a young woman giving birth to a child? Uh, our nursery is filled in respects to that. That wouldn't be miraculous in any way, shape, or form, nor would it be a sign. It just means that our church is getting crowded. And yet here, it's very clear that it's a virgin mother. And, um, and imagine... It's one thing to have a 13 to 16-year-old go and, and tell her boyfriend she's pregnant or to tell her, her betrothed that she's pregnant. Now, that's difficult in and of itself. And as we see in the book of Luke, she said, let it be unto me uh, your handmaid, a servant of the Lord, let it be unto me as you have said. And basically, when she says handmaid, she uses the lowest form in the, in the Greek. Uh, she's basically using the feminine uh, voice for doulos, which means bondservant. It's the lowest form in culture and society. I'm here as a servant of the Lord. I'm here to do your bidding. Let it be unto me as you have spoken. And she surrenders and submits herself to what God has said. And that's just the beginning of it. Now she has to go and tell Joseph she's pregnant. And Joseph being a just man, the likelihood is the way we've seen the story is that he, he probably thought she was a little off kilter because he sought to put her away quietly. Like if we can find an insane asylum, we'll put her there. Uh, because you can imagine the first statement, I'm with child. I mean, imagine for those of you who have accepted Christ into your heart, you go and tell your family, I'm a Christian now, Jesus is in my heart. Imagine Mary, I'm a Christian now, Jesus is in my womb. <laughs> our family, you know, looked at us when we said Jesus is in our heart. I remember the first time I told my dad that I'm a Christian and I've accepted Christ into my heart. I won't say what he said, but he, he wasn't favorable. And, uh, and yet, 
Imagine having to go and tell Joseph that, that the Son of God is in my womb. The first one is difficult enough. The second one, and, and this idea of betrothed, by the way, we don't grasp it in our culture. For a year, you were betrothed, and it was considered a marriage only without conjugal visits. And, 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 and this idea of being betrothed, that if you broke the betrothal or you were unfaithful, it would be considered adultery, and you would have to serve papers of divorce. So for all intents and purposes, she was married, and until the night where he would come, the bridegroom would be building a house for her. And, and as we've heard Jesus say, I go and prepare a place for you that where I am there, you will be also. We're the, we're the bride. He's the groom. He's preparing a place for us as, as Gail McWilliams has come to know, as my father's come to know, as Shannon Grove's mother's come to know. He's gone to prepare a place for us and that where I am there, you will be also. And so Joseph went to go prepare a place for his bride. And, and as he started to build this, he was a carpenter. So you can imagine just like the person who built this put a lot of extra care into it because there was love behind it. And, and that's what Joseph was doing for Mary. And you can imagine his heart broken when she comes to tell him that she's with child. He probably threw his hammer down. He was probably frustrated. Who is it? Who did this? And, and struggling to try to comprehend all of these things. And then being a just man, he wanted to put her away quietly because obviously she's not in her right mind. I, I, there's something terribly wrong with her. And then we see in the story in Matthew where the angel visits him and tells him the whole situation that it might be fulfilled. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And by the way, Jesus' people, as according to the scriptures, Jesus' people are anyone who sins. Now some folks in here go, uh, well, then you're not his people, you're just prideful. Sin is just a, a measure of not obtaining perfection. We've all fallen short of that. And we've seen how it's manifested. I, I went and watched uh, the uh, screening of The Shack last night, and I was so, so deeply touched. The premise of the story is that a man's daughter is abducted and murdered. And as he comes into contact with a picture of the Trinity, which is baffling and, and unbelievable, there he sits with what is a, the character for God the Father and says to God the Father, you're completely omnipotent, you're all-powerful, and you're all-loving. My question to you then, if you're all-powerful and all-loving, how did you let this man kill my daughter? And, and really, the answer in the movie is so fascinating. It left me so deeply touched that I was confirmed in my heart that the God I serve is a good God, a loving God a faithful God and a powerful God, and he is God. That movie rocked my world. And for those of you who stand in maybe um, judgment, I would say that this is one of those instances in life where the movie's better than the book. And come March 3rd, you better invite everybody and your, your grandmother to come and see that. But as I looked at the way that they contemplated the difficulties of life, all of us have something in common. We have sin. Jesus has come to save his people from their sin. Sin has manifested itself in our life in a myriad of ways and broken relationships that we find very difficult in the Christmas season. Wondering whose house we're going to spend Christmas at. Oh, not them. And we may be sitting next to somebody we're struggling with. But this is life. We all hurt and we've all hurt. And God has come to save us from our sin and to reconcile us to teach us a new and better way, a way that will transform the world in which we live, that will bring life and life more abundant. We come for a hope. But the fascinating thing to me is the passage of Scripture that the Lord decided to refer to 
when he said so that it might be fulfilled. And that's where we're going to focus this evening. You've heard the Christmas story. I've shared with you about Mary and Joseph. But the passage that touches me is here in Matthew chapter 1. When Matthew is recounting, here we have this, this Jewish, possibly Pharisee, Levitical priest who is so sick of religious hypocrisy that he's gone in to work for the Roman government as a tax collector and has abandoned his people. And here he sees in Jesus the real thing. So deeply touched in this restored relationship with the living God that religion has tried to keep him away, yet God has embraced him. And he hears these words uttered. And he points out in verse 20 of chapter 1 that while Joseph thought about these things. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, which is fascinating, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is the part that touches me. All of it does, but this most importantly. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, and we've covered this, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The portion of Scripture that God refers to or the angel refers to to Joseph that Matthew so faithfully writes down is found in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, to give you the context, Ahaz is the king, and he's being overwhelmed and overrun by, by militant armies. And the hope of Israel is about to be dashed. And Ahaz is a finagler. Ahaz is trying to somehow manipulate and work it so that he can save himself and save his kingdom. And he sees the army starting to amass to come against him. He realizes that he might be able to make an agreement or an arrangement or a peace treaty with the Syrians who are behind the Egyptians. If he can reach the Syrians in time, he can say to them, let's have a pact and we'll go into this together. You will be behind them. We will be in front of them. We can sandwich the Egyptian army and wipe them out. And then I will give you everything that is in the storehouse in the treasury. But he's hoping to keep himself alive and to buy some time. He's not crying out to God. He's not seeking the Lord. He's trying to figure out a solution to his problem. Let me stop there for a moment. Life is filled with challenges. Life is filled with overwhelming odds and circumstances that seem overwhelming. We find ourselves in difficult circumstances at the death of a loved one or a proclamation of an illness in our life or a financial constraint or a relational issue. We become so overwhelmed, we do everything in our power to try to fix it. We try to work it out in the solution in our head, and we do everything we can to try to stay alive for another day. We find ourselves flustered and overwhelmed, and it seems as though one problem manifests into another one, and we look out and we cry, where are you, God? This is not what I had hoped for. This is not what I had planned. I was reading a book that has touched me about the significance of America, and I was thinking about the pilgrims coming to the, to the New World in 1620. They were going to go to New York. That was their destination, their location. They were actually Puritans, and they had, they had sought to, in a sense, rebel against England because they wanted religious freedom, and they were so sick of the hypocrisy of the state-run church that they, 
in the Reformation, these staunch Puritans, these Calvinists, had, had sought to make Jesus the Lord of the church. Whereas the Church of England, or England itself, would say that the king is the head of the church, and they would say, no, Christ is. These Puritans were so steadfast that they were considered tyrants, and they left England and found security and safe haven in, of all places, the Netherlands, which even to this day is tolerant and open and affirming. And they found safe haven in a city that tolerated pretty much anything. And they realized that if they continued to remain there, they would lose their identity and their strength as Christians. And so they decided to venture to the new world. They left on the Mayflower from, from the Netherlands, and they did land in England for a brief period of time to say goodbye to family and friends, and then ventured to the new world. They were going to land in New York where there was a Dutch settlement, and had they landed there, they would have been assimilated into the Dutch culture, and they would have lost their fervency in this picture of a city on a hill. The winds were contrary. Many died on board. A young boy was born. His name was Oceanus, and he had survived. He lived to be seven years of age before he died when they arrived in the new world. But they had faced all kinds of misery on board that ship, contrary winds, um, violent seas. A crossing that would take about 30 days took about 60 The winds had blown them 250 miles north of where they were supposed to land, and they ended up, we call it Plymouth Rock, but it's really where we see, in a sense, Martha's Vineyard. When they landed, the beaches were smooth, and there was a hill and an embankment where they could build a fortress, and they realized that the trees had been cleared as though someone had farmed it previously. When the winter ensued, it was cold and miserable in late November, and many were dying of starvation and being attacked by a a band of Indians that remained they, they began to hunker down. During this period of time, over 10,000 uh, colonists, I would say, left Europe for America, and by this time, only a fifth were still alive. Uh, the attempt at Roanoke by Sir Walter Raleigh ended up with everyone dead. And on and on and on, we can go down the list of all these folks that hadn't survived. But these pilgrims, when they got to the land, they began to rejoice and thank God for the contrary winds. Most of us would look at it and say, where are you, God? They began to thank him for the challenges. The Bible says, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. They began to thank the Lord. In the midst of it, they met a man who came to them and said, hello, Englishman. He was an Indian. Manasset came and he said, hello, Englishman. And his English was broken, but he, he communicated. He says, I want you to meet someone who's lost his entire tribe. And he introduced them to this man named Squanto. Squanto had been to Europe. He had not only been to England, he had made four crossings of the Atlantic Ocean, which is, is the equivalent of trying to take the space shuttle to space. There just weren't ships going to the New World. He had been enslaved twice, captured twice. He had ended up in Spain, and he had been cared for by priests, monks, who had taught him the things of the Lord. Here's this Catholic-trained Indian from the New World who has had four journeys across the Atlantic, is now back in the New World, and comes and greets them in the king's English. Now, he's a Catholic by by background, and here he is with these staunch Calvinist Protestants. He begins to teach them how to plant. You take five corn seeds and three fish, and he taught them how to get these fish when they were running through the streams and how to build these embankments to catch the fish. He showed them where the eels were in the mud, and all you had to do was step on it, and they were sweet. The meat would be, as William Bradford would point out. He began to teach them how to plant. He says, you take the five seeds and the three fish, and you put them in the ground. And out of that fertilizing technique, had an abundant crop that caused these 
these uh, pilgrims to survive. Now, many say, well, this was the Indian way of fertilizing, but there was, there's no known evidence of any type of fertilization done by Indians in the New World. You see, Squanto had learned how to do this in Europe. An agrarian t- trained uh, in farming to come and teach these folks how to do these things. And William Bradford would say he was an instrument, a gift from God to keep us alive. No one knows us about our history. We've forgotten that. But here, these folks gave thanks to God, contrary winds, and really where they settled would allowed them to be who God had called them to be and to do what God had called them to do and gave them fair haven and safety. Today, we are here in a room filled with religious liberty that they had established. We can go on and on and on about contrary issues. Yet we see the hand of God and work even in trials and difficult circumstances. And so when Ahaz was faced with the Egyptians overrunning, it was then that the prophet came and spoke. Isaiah came and spoke to Ahaz. And he said to him in Isaiah 7, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he goes on to say, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her by, by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. And he points out the days that have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah. Isaiah goes on to declare in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From this time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform it. See, what God had told to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah was that I am going to give you a sign. Trust me on this or take matters into your own hands. Either heed the Lord and yield to him that these things will work together for good. Even though the circumstances seem overwhelming, you can either trust me or put matters into your own hands. I want to say that again. God said to Ahaz, and he says to us this day, I know you have troubles. You can either trust me that I will work it together for good or take matters into your own hands. Have you been wronged? Have you been hurt? Do you want justice? Do you want revenge? Are you bitter? Are you angry? That's you. That's not God. That's you taking matters into your own hands. And all you're doing is perpetuating sin. All you're doing is doing to others what has been done to you. And the world is in turmoil and we're in hurt and we're in pain. And in the dawn of time before Ahaz and now here in the Christmas story and today in this room, God says, unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And the virgin shall be with child. This is a miracle of God given to man and given to a specific class of people. He has come to save his people from their sins. You see, the room is filled with people, but his people are those that agree, I need help. 
I'm tired of doing this on my own. I'm tired of hurting and being hurt. God, show me in all of this pain how you're going to work it together for good. I was touched by the story. I miss my dad. But I reflected on this as I imparted to my sons this day how proud I am of them and reflected back on my dad speaking to me. How I saw in my life at 52 years of age the gifts my father has imparted to me. That this is a man who was the only one in his entire family to receive a college degree. My grandfather was the town drunk. My grandmother was a tarot card reader and a soothsayer. And all the children of the city would laugh at my grandfather when they would take the church bus at the drunk on the bridge. My dad had much to be bitter about. He had much to blame others for, but not my dad. Though he had never known the Lord in his early life, personally, he knew of his presence. He knew that there was something better, and by that desire, he pursued these things that are good. He wanted to make a difference. He had three tours of Vietnam, rose to the rank of captain. Later in life, had a personal relationship with the God that he had always wanted to know one that had been presented to him in such a way that nobody would have wanted to know him, and that I don't blame him for denying him in his early childhood because the church oftentimes does a great job of depicting Jesus in a way nobody would want anything to do with him. But my dad came to a personal relationship with a God who said, I've come to save my people from their sins. My dad's hardest difficulty in embracing the Lord is that he didn't think God was big enough to forgive him of all of his sins. You see, as a military officer, he was responsible for launching rockets into Vietnam. And when the fire power ceased and the battle ended, he had to go in and assess the damage. I remember him recounting the death of all these children and he just thought, God can't forgive me for this. I remember saying, you know, Dad, in Scripture, the one that God had the greatest amazement with were the centurions, the Roman soldiers. They were men under authority. Dad, God can forgive you. He's come to save his people from their sins. He could have turned that heartache into alcoholism, which he did for a season, but God delivered him when he yielded his life to him. Why are you hurting? What is the pain? How has it manifested itself in making you a better person? Why is it that the people that love you most are most hurt by your bitterness? You see, God has come to save his people from their sins. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all have this mess. We're all his children. We all have sinned. He's come to forgive you. He's given you a sign that it might be fulfilled. And the fulfillment of that passage was found in what we just read this night. 
And we have celebrated for over 2,000 years the birth of the Christ child, the Savior of the world. He came to forgive you and cleanse you and cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He's come to give you life and life more abundant that the bitterness will be removed from your family and hope will be replaced. Or hope will replace the bitterness that once existed. Why would you deny so great a salvation? Why would you continue in your sin? Why would you allow this grief and this pain and this bitterness to consume you when God has come to save you from your sin? When the world could be a better place if we but yield to a Savior, why would you even take it so far as to deny that the Savior is born of a virgin? Why would you deny the existence of God? What has that done for you? What has it done for the world? I tire, I tire of the people who condemn me because I have the audacity to believe that there's a God who rules in the affairs of men, especially in a nation who's been touched by the hand of God so profoundly. And they would incite that that there's no place for Christ in the government, even though the government will be upon his shoulder, there's no place for him in government. And they invoke the Salem witch trials. And I say to those, you justify your secular position of removing God from our culture, while at the same time ignoring the billions who have died in secular governments, whether it be Stalin or Mao Zedong or Pol Pot. 27 people died in the Salem witch trials, and it was ended by Christians. Christians who brought to this nation due process that changed the face of the earth. And we deny so great a salvation. And I would say to you this day, why are you fighting this God? Ahaz did, and it served him no good. You will not win. Instead, he comes in the form of a child, approachable. He takes on a form that is so unthreatening to tell you today I've come to save my people from their sins. Come unto me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I remember when my dad gave his heart to the Lord. That burden was lifted. And the forgiveness filled his heart. He finished life well. And this is a Christmas my dad will never forget. And one in which I'm grateful. And as I look into the eyes of my boys, I realize that my dad, wanting to not allow his past to affect his future, found the source of his joy, Jesus Christ. And in a very profound way, by his life, he imparted that to me. And today I give it to you. Merry Christmas. May the God who's come to save us from our sins be your God. Let your pride go aside and let Jesus come inside your heart. And may Jesus bless you with this gift of Christmas, his son. God the Father gave you his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the world sure could use for a dose of life. Amen. Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. And let me pray, and we're going to have another song. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Lord Jesus, you're here right now. And you're speaking to every heart present. That if you come to me, I'll show you great and mighty things you know not of. 
I'll give you life and life more abundant. Give me your burden. Give me your pain. I'll give you my life. I will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness that I will be your God and you shall be my child. This is the gift to us from God Almighty on this Christmas Eve in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.